Chapter 13. Terrorism. On the 9th of February 1996, at 5.30pm, the Provisional IRA announced that they were ending their 17-month ceasefire. Shortly after this announcement, a number of calls were made to media organisations warning that a large bomb had been left near South Quay Station in Docklands. And sure enough, a large unattended truck was found close to Marsh Wall. This bore all the hallmarks of an imminent pyra attack, and the police therefore urgently began evacuating the area. At about 7pm, the lorry bomb exploded, killing two people and destroying the surrounding area. If you want to see the devastating results of the explosion, search online for the Marsh Wall Bomb. Whilst you're at it, have a look at the damage caused by the Baltic Exchange Bomb in 1992 and the Bishopsgate Bomb in 1993, which preceded the Pyra ceasefire in 1994. The IRA didn't mess around. These massive bombs were manufactured using homemade explosives, HME, which are made from mixing nitrate-rich fertiliser with sugar, which is then initiated using detonators attached to a time and power unit, TPU. The TPU is basically a box with some sort of timing mechanism attached to batteries with sufficient electrical power to set off the detonators. A driver would simply park a lorry with a bomb in the back near their target and flick a switch to arm the device on a timer before walking away and getting picked up by an accomplice waiting nearby. Typically, these bombs were made of several thousand pounds of HME and by containing the explosion within the confines of a steel-sided lorry their explosive power was massively increased. They are referred to as large vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices and were used by Pyra throughout the 1980s and 90s to devastating effect in Northern Ireland. Once the device had been armed, warning calls would then be made to the authorities in which a code word was given with an approximate location of the bomb. Theoretically, this warning would give the authorities time to start clearing the target location. But often the warnings were unclear, or the location was deliberately ambiguous, making it a race against time to find the bomb and get people away from it. With the South Key bombing, Pyra was back at war with the British state, and as the policing organisation responsible for defeating them, Special Branch was therefore back on a war footing with them. I can remember feeling incredibly excited at the prospect of getting stuck in, but I was also conscious of the fact that I was still working on Islamic extremism. Therefore, on the basis that shy children get nothing, I spoke to my boss on E-Squad and asked him if I could get redeployed back onto B-Squad. I remember him rolling his eyes and laughing but agreeing to let me go at the next movement of staff between squads. This came within days, after the management of Special Branch directed a significant increase in B-Squad capacity in response to the resumption of hostilities. 
Therefore, the week after the bombing, I was back where I wanted to be. The entire atmosphere within the department changed overnight, and there was a real buzz of activity and excitement. I was posted to one of the operations, or ops, teams on B Squad. We were responsible for developing incoming intelligence on potential threats to try and firm up what we were dealing with. Intelligence might have come from a highly sensitive source, or it might have been something as simple as a member of the public ringing up to report unusual activity at an address. It all had to be bottomed out in order to be either confirmed or eliminated. Much of the information that we were given in good faith by police officers and members of the public would turn out to be of no security interest whatsoever. But this could not be assumed. In the past, Pyra ASUs had been identified as a result of seemingly trivial snippets of information being passed to a local bobby on the beat, who then fed this into the intelligence system before it found its way to someone on a B-Squad ops team. So everything had to be meticulously investigated. B-Squad detectives, who had been around for a long time, had lots of examples of Pyra compromising themselves as a result of what we called the Paddy Factor. These were moments when a highly trained and experienced terrorist would give himself away in a silly lapse in operational security or tradecraft. For example, they might get sloppy and leave valuable forensic evidence behind, or do something in a moment of foolishness that caused alarm bells to ring with special branch. And someone who had seen something similar before in a different investigation would put two and two together. The next few months flew by, and I spent long days and weekends at work chasing down intelligence leads with my team, and improving my craft as a special branch officer. However, we had a lot of fun, and there was very much a work hard, play hard mentality, with lots of clever, funny people bonding over police war stories, carrying out cruel practical jokes on each other, and drinking a lot. In between operations, we would have enormous, raucous, after-hours squad piss-ups, where an entire floor at Scotland Yard would be filled with scores of detectives of every rank, drinking, laughing and bickering amidst a thick fog of cigarette smoke. Interestingly, during such drinking sessions, a lot of good work was done, because this was very democratic, a rank-free environment creating a flow of ideas, theories and tactical discussions where everyone's views were listened to. Frequently, the ideas put forward the night before would be put into action over the following days. Occasionally, the job could be pure tragic comedy, and on one occasion in 1996, I was on the receiving end. Today, the police's ability to gather video evidence of terrorist activity has become very sophisticated. However, back then it was fairly rudimentary. We would find a friendly occupant of a premises that had a view of the target address and staff it with eagle-eyed B-Squad officers who would maintain a running log of what was happening and then direct the subjects to the surveillance team when they left the address. There would also generally be a video camera to record comings and goings 
This would support the account of the officers in the observation post, OP, and ensure that if we had to go to the loo or had a severe sneezing fit, nothing would be missed. The video recordings would be made on old-style VHS tapes that would periodically be collected and returned to Scotland Yard to be stored as evidential exhibits. There's nothing sensitive in telling you this, because the defence teams in every trial get shown footage from these tapes so that they can check that the police have not made up the evidence. They obviously don't get told where the actual OP was, or who lived in the address, and we were always careful to ensure that the intelligence could have been gathered from any one of a dozen addresses. On this occasion, I was dispatched from the yard to go to an OP and pick up some VHS tapes that were required quite urgently. Two of my B-Squad mates were physically in the OP, so I left a message for them on our pagers and told them that I'd be there in about 20 minutes. I'd never been to this particular OP before, so just before I left, I popped my head round the door of the operations room and scribbled down the address that was written on a whiteboard. I jumped on the tube at St James's Park and made my way towards that part of town. On arrival, at my last tube destination, I paged them again to say I'd be about two minutes so that they could be at the front door ready to let me in quickly so that I wouldn't be hanging around in the street in plain view of our terrorists. Simple things like that could make the difference between compromising a job and maintaining cover. I walked up to the door and knocked a couple of times. I waited for what seemed like an eternity, getting annoyed that the guys hadn't opened the door immediately, because I knew I was coming. Then I heard footsteps approaching inside and the door swung open. To my indescribable horror, I stood looking into the face of one of our terrorists and instantly realised that I'd mistakenly knocked on the door of the target premises rather than the OP. My mind was whirling and I could feel the blood draining from my face. Very quickly I stammered, uh, Hello, uh, sorry to bother you, but it's Stephen. He looked at me blankly and a broad Irish accent replied, there's no Steve here. I apologised and said something about Steve the plumber and how I thought he lived there, or some such nonsense, and then turned on my heel and walked off up the street trying to look as casual as possible. As I was walking away, I was swearing under my breath as my pages started vibrating. The message said, You idiot! What the hell are you doing? The guys in the OP had been watching me knocking on the door and were doing their nut. I walked around the corner out of sight of the address and smacked my head hard with my hand, cursing my stupidity. I rang the OP and my mate John answered. What the hell were you doing? He asked in disbelief. Oh God, John, I feel like such an idiot. I wrote down the address of the target when I thought it was... I was writing the address of the OP, I explained. In the end, it was fine. The subjects carried on quite normally and clearly hadn't been spooked. The operation ended successfully, so I'd clearly got away with it. 
but I received so much grief for my stupidity for months after. It was a story that got told and retold in the pub. From that time on, there was a policy that the address of the target address was always written in red on the whiteboard and the OP address was double underlined in black. On another occasion, I was leaving a different OP in the middle of the night, carrying a hold all full of camera gear and videotapes. When suddenly a police response car came roaring up beside me, screeched to a halt, and two uniformed PCs leapt out and almost rugby tackled me. This was in full view of the target address. So my attempts to leave the address silently and unobtrusively hadn't quite worked out as I'd planned. I hissed at them. Guys, I'm police, special branch. Let me go and I'll meet you a hundred yards around the corner as we're all going to blow this bloody operation. But they refused to believe me, thinking it was a clever ploy to get away with a bag of stolen gear. So I decided to go along with them. Okay then, I'll get in the car and you can pretend to arrest me so at least if someone's watching it just looks like you're doing a job, I said. I got in the back of the car and the driver spun it around and they took off at speed with their prisoner. We pulled over at the side of the road a few hundred yards away and I fished out my warrant card from my wallet, at which point they both looked a bit embarrassed. In the end, we all had a laugh about it and they went off looking for some real criminals. Officers tend to spend a large part of their careers in SB, which meant that it wasn't unusual for a senior officer of superintendent or chief superintendent rank to have worked with many of the lower ranking officers since the time when they were all DCs. This created a more effective team and made it much easier for all ranks to have an honest conversation about either a personal or an operational issue. This culture was destroyed some years later by a policy known as tenure, which required everyone to move out of a specialist department after a set period of time. This policy diluted the deep subject matter knowledge in specialist departments, and it resulted in the recruitment of some senior officers into SB who didn't understand what the department did, and as a result, they then made some terrible decisions. The worst offenders in this respect were those who came in with an agenda to make big changes, shake things up and get themselves promoted, leaving a trail of destruction in their wake. The argument for the tenure policy was that specialisms created an elitist culture which needed to be stamped out. However, the reality was that regardless of whether you liked the idea of an elitist culture, many of these established officers were extremely good at their jobs and it ultimately felt like they were being punished for this. The period following the breakdown of the Pyrrhus ceasefire was largely spent focusing on two key challenges. Catching and convicting those responsible for the Docklands bomb, and stopping the next attack from happening. The first task sat primarily with our colleagues in the anti-terrorism branch, and was led by the irrepressible commander John Grieve who eventually led an audacious mission with the British Army into the heart of South Armagh to try to arrest the bombers and bring them to justice. Over the next two years, life on SO12 
and in our sister department, SO13, was hectic. We all lurched from one high-tempo operation to another. In retrospect, I was pretty selfish during this period of my life. I had a wife and young daughter at home, and I spent very long days at work, frequently spending up to 16 hours a day on operational duties. I came home only to sleep, and then would get up at 4 or 5 a.m. to drive across London to change time-lapse videotapes, or sit in OPs with other similarly unshaven, sweaty, smelly detectives. We waited for our subjects to leave home to assist the surveillance teams out on the ground, who would follow those subjects 24-7, gathering intelligence and evidence. It's a strange life working on these operations. It's very intense, and the bonds that you form with colleagues are powerful. Perhaps stronger than any bonds I formed in the other policing I did in my career. I think it's the combination of long hours, the seriousness of what we were doing, the secrecy, and working with great people who were all completely committed to what we were doing. I've never laughed as much as I've laughed in some of those OPs, or when I worked on surveillance teams as a photographer years later. I used to play a lot of sport in my younger years, and working on such operations was a bit like being on tour with a sports team every day of your life. Hard work and lots and lots of fun, piss-taking and laughter. Although I cannot go into much detail about operational specifics. In 1996 and 1997, Special Branch basically dismantled Pyra's mainland capabilities. We took out the Pyra A-Team in Operation Airlines, which thwarted a plot to take out electricity substations around London and bring down the national grid. It was estimated that had the attack been successful, it would have taken a minimum of six months to restore full electricity coverage to the UK, crippling the economy. We then took out the B team in Operation Tinnitus, which targeted an active service unit that was sent to London to carry out an attack using a massive quantity of explosives kept in a storage unit in North London. It was at the conclusion of this operation that the Met Firearms Team, SO19, shot dead Dermot O'Neill, a member of the Provisional IRA unit. O'Neill was born and bred in London to Irish parents and was the ideal local facilitator for the team as a classic clean skin, who could move around without drawing attention to himself, mixing with locals who all knew him well, while simultaneously planning death and destruction on a massive scale. The police took no pleasure in his death, he was a young man with his future ahead of him and he got drawn into something that ended up costing him his life. Like so many before him, he'd been groomed by extremists who had taught him how to cause carnage and kill innocent people. Pyra were responsible for a huge amount of death and misery over many years. It was all a pointless waste of life and it achieved absolutely nothing that could not have been brought about by purely political means. I once got into an argument about whether I considered myself to be British or Irish. I was born and brought up in Northern Ireland, 
I grew up in a Protestant community, but I went to a Quaker school. I answered that question by saying that if I had to come down on one side of the fence and choose my nationality, I would say that I feel more Irish than British. This is based on my deep love for the island of Ireland and my deep love for the people. However, I've lived in England since I was 18. I also love England and the British way of life. All four of my kids were born in England and I took an oath to serve Her Majesty the Queen. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Pyra were wrong in every way and I took great pride and pleasure in playing a part in their ultimate defeat on the mainland. These operational successes helped to push the Republican movement back to the negotiating table with the British government. Shortly after this in 1998, the Pyrrhus ceasefire was restored and the Good Friday Agreement was signed in Belfast, ending 30 years of Pyra terrorism in the UK. ESSA 12 and ESSA 13 had achieved great things in policing terms, saving many lives and helping to change the course of British history. A couple of years ago, the BBC made an excellent series called Spotlight on the Troubles, A Secret History. I would strongly recommend it to anyone who wants to know more about the Met's involvement in defeating Republican terrorism on the mainland during this period of time. From 1999, my last three years in Special Branch were spent on a surveillance team, which were some of my most enjoyable years in the police. In this time, I worked on many highly sensitive national security operations, as well as serious crime operations during periods of downtime, when our teams would be subcontracted out to other Scotland Yard departments. However, this was another period in which I periodically spent a lot of time away from home. Still, I was fortunate because I was one of a small number of dedicated photographers, which meant that we could only work effectively during daylight hours and I therefore had more time at home than I'd had on B-Squad. The years I spent on the surveillance team were intense, but also great fun. We all did an initial four-week course, two weeks learning foot follows and two weeks in cars. The approach and trade craft of surveillance are very different depending on whether you're on foot or driving. And when on a proper operational team, it's usually a mixture of both forms. Sometimes you might have to completely abandon your vehicle to follow a subject on foot and then get onto a train with them and travel to the other end of the country. Instructors delivered the training from our sister unit SO11, which largely did surveillance against criminals, for example, bank robbers, drug dealers and paedophiles. Whereas in SO12, we worked on operations against terrorists, foreign spies and political extremists. For reasons best known to themselves, SO11 instructors didn't like SO12 surveillance officers and they made it very clear that if they had their way, they'd fail us all. I think in their heads they thought they were the only department that should be doing surveillance at all and they resented the fact that we wouldn't talk about what we did. I think that small-minded mentality has now changed, but back then, there was a lot of rivalry between so-called elite departments. The instructors were super experienced, but unforgiving of mistakes. Generally, 
students would be allowed one or two serious errors, but more than that, and they would immediately be binned off the course. Surveillance is conducted against some of the most challenging and frequently dangerous criminals. It's also incredibly expensive and obviously has a significant impact on the human rights of the individuals under surveillance and their families. This was an interesting time in terms of photographic gear and processes. When I started in 1999, we used Nikon film cameras and wet film exclusively. We would shoot film and then drive to the Met Police Photographic Lab in Camberwell to get it developed. We would then drive back to the office in Vauxhall to put the images into albums and then drive over to Scotland Yard to hand the albums to a colleague. Not exactly the most efficient process. Three years later, we were using the first fully digital Nikon D1 SLRs and sending the images back directly into the operations room via a laptop and mobile phone, which allowed us to stay in the field longer and make the most of available light. However, we continued to use fast black and white film from time to time because of its low light capabilities. And we had our own darkroom where we developed the images. I loved to work in this darkroom and it was here in the small dimly lit space listening to BBC Radio 4 that I first heard about the events in New York on the 11th of September 2001 when Al-Qaeda terrorists launched multiple attacks on the United States using passenger jets full of innocent passengers as missiles. I can remember leaving the darkness and joining colleagues in the main office and we all stood there open-mouthed with disbelief watching Sky News. Inevitably, our work changed overnight as the UK came to terms with a new reality of dealing with an enemy that was prepared to carry out the mass murder of men, women and children and who actively sought martyrdom. This was completely uncharted territory for Special Branch after many years of dealing with the IRA, which was an organisation whose members generally tried to avoid killing civilians if possible and who definitely didn't want to die on active service. So, what makes an outstanding surveillance officer? There are several skills and qualities that are important. Firstly, the ability to feel comfortable and blend into almost any environment without drawing attention to yourself is paramount. This includes urban streets, leafy suburbia and rural locations. Inside pubs, shops, trains, buses, expensive hotels, grotty hotels and airports. This is something that comes with experience. But surveillance officers are taught how to avoid disturbing the environment that they're working in to prevent showing out to the subjects under surveillance or for that matter, the general public. Bearing in mind that the whole point of surveillance is to gather intelligence and evidence to progress an investigation, a good surveillance officer also needs to have an excellent powers of observation and awareness of the surroundings. They need to know instinctively when to get up really close to the subject and when to pull right back and use their instincts and experience to preempt what someone is going to do next or where they're going to go 
so that they can direct other members of the team to get ahead of the subject. When it all comes together, it's a beautiful thing, and it's a joy to be part of an experienced team who've worked together a long time and who are all tuned into each other. It's the best game of hide and seek ever invented. Surveillance officers also need to be good drivers and navigators, as frequently a subject will leave home in the morning and end up hundreds of miles away by the end of the day. I can think of many times I had to frantically drive literally from one end of the country to the other, whilst the subject sat relaxing on a train, as we struggled to get ahead of him to provide an invisible welcoming committee as he arrived at his destination. As a surveillance photographer, the three things that caused the most issues involved going to the toilet, running out of electrical power, and dealing with the heat or the cold when stuck in the back of a vehicle for hours at a time. If we needed a pee on the job, we used to use a Lenore fabric conditioner bottle that was an ideal shape and size. It had a nice wide neck, so you didn't miss. However, if you were stuck in the van with another fellow photographer for a long time, the bottle could get pretty full, which wasn't great. There was also a strict code of conduct about not touching the neck of the bottle when sharing the piss bottle. That was definitely bad form. After every shift, it was important that you made sure you emptied the Lenore bottle and washed it out. On one occasion, I forgot to do this and left the bottle in my hot van for two weeks whilst I was on my summer holidays. When I got back, the bottle had been stewing nicely in the heat, and I don't think it's possible to even describe the smell when I emptied it. If you needed a number two, you basically had to hold it in as long as you could. And if that wasn't possible, you would have to go and find a local loo. Murphy's Law dictated that the subject would almost certainly appear just after you left the van. If we were out in the countryside and there was no facilities around, we would call up on the radio and tell the team that we were going windsurfing. This involved driving to a discreet location, winding the driver's window right down, getting out of the car and holding on to the open window of the door, then leaning back as far as you could, as if it was the boom of a windsurfing sail. The leaning back as far as possible was an important skill that was learned from bitter experience. Not a pretty sight if some poor bird watcher was looking through his binoculars at what was going on. But when you've got to go, you've got to go. Electrical power was always a challenge. Everything in the van ran off a couple of leisure batteries and sometimes we'd be deployed day after day and often in quite remote locations. The SLR cameras and video cameras sucked battery life. The comms radio also fed off the batteries and our mobile phones also needed to be fully charged. This was always worse in winter as batteries run out very quickly in the cold. Which brings me to the third surveillance problem. When conducting surveillance in Britain, there was very little of the year when it wasn't either too cold or too hot in the back of the van. As well as basically being a metal box on wheels, all the vehicles we used were soundproofed, which made them even warmer in the summer. 
In the winter, we would be bundled up like Nanook of the North, trying desperately hard not to breathe over the viewfinder to avoid it getting steamed up. In the summer, we'd be stripped down to our pants with sweat literally pouring off us. We often spent long periods of time waiting for stuff to happen. If a surveillance target settled down in the pub for several hours or didn't come out of their house for a long time, we would all be holed up discreetly nearby, waiting for the off. It was weird, because there'd be hours and hours during which nothing happened. Then the radio would spring into life as someone had their eyes on the subject. Stand by, stand by. We have movement. Subject is standing up. He's towards the door. And he's out, out, turning left, left, on foot back towards the vehicle. There might then be a period of manic activity when the subject would meet with other co-conspirators and the team would have to split to follow multiple subjects whose activities also needed to be documented, photographed or videoed. Sometimes the most boring deployments quickly turned into the most manic and led to high-speed pursuits halfway across the country. I've thought about those days on surveillance a lot over the years. It was the most fun I ever had in the police. And after reading about the psychology of addiction, it ticked many of those boxes. Combining fast-moving surveillance and photography triggered continual dopamine hits of excitement, satisfaction and reward, like no other job I've ever done. Perhaps that's why I also enjoy fishing. It brings out the primeval hunter-gatherer in me. The boring periods of waiting were filled by talking complete bollocks to each other or by planning and executing cruel practical jokes. On one occasion, we were holed up on a crappy industrial estate somewhere in the east end of London, waiting for a subject to move. There were three or four of our cars scattered around and one of the bikers had jumped into my van to keep me warm. We noticed that there was a couple of skips full of rotten food waste that were literally crawling with rats. We joked that if we'd had an air rifle and a telescopic sight, we could have had great fun. Our sergeant team leader was horrified by the sight of the rats and stupidly told us that he was terrified of them. After an hour or so, the team leader called up to say that he was leaving on foot to go and use the toilet in a nearby pub. Whilst he was gone, we left the driver's door of his car wide open. Got a couple of old manky sandwiches, which we tore up into little pieces, and laid a trail of scraps from the skips into his car, putting more scraps all over the seats. When he came back, we sat watching him, giggling like schoolgirls, as the look on his face turned from confusion at seeing the driver's door of his car wide open to one of horror at seeing the trail of food from the rat-infested skips. He was not happy, and outright refused to get back into his car. He asked us if any of the rats had gone inside, and we told him that as far as we could see, only one had gone in, which was nonsense. Eventually, the only way that we could persuade him to get in the car was to open all the doors and the boot for him and show him that there was nothing in there. 
On another occasion, we were deployed on a terrorist job at a location in the north of England. I was up there for four days and four nights, for weeks on end, and the surveillance teams and firearms teams were rotating across 12-hour shifts a day. On one evening, it was our team's turn to do the night shift. And given that I was the team photographer, and because you can't take photos in the dark, I snuck off to a lay-by in a rather remote spot to get my head down for a few hours in the back of my van. I laid out a camping mat in the back, climbed into my sleeping bag, pulled my woolly hat down over my eyes, and went to sleep. I woke up a couple of hours later to the sound of a dull, metallic thud. But as I was half asleep, I thought I was dreaming and attempted to go back to sleep. However, I then heard noises coming from the driver's compartment of the van, which was separated from where I was lying by a solid metal bulkhead. I lay there frozen still, listening intently, my heart pounding in my chest. Then, suddenly, to my horror, I heard the engine start up and the van took off with me in the back, wrapped in my sleeping bag, like a cross between Captain Scott of the Antarctic and Tutankhamun. I struggled out of my sleeping bag as the van started picking up speed and approached the driver's compartment. I unlocked one of the four-inch portholes in the bulkhead that I would normally use to take photographs through and peeped through to see what was going on. There was only the driver in the van, who was a young lad who looked about 20 years old. He was wearing a baseball cap and clearly had no idea that I was in the van. By this time, we were travelling along a fairly quiet dual carriageway at some speed. I opened the portal and shouted as loud as I could, What the fuck are you doing? Stop this van! The effect was instantaneous. The thief absolutely shat himself and almost lost control of the van. He slammed the brakes on, jumped out and ran off, leaving the van in the middle of the road with the engine running. I waited a few moments before opening the hatch in the bulkhead and climbing through into the front. The van had been hot-wired and the engine was still running, so I drove it back to our hotel and got the damage repaired the next day sheepishly reporting the theft to one of the local special branch guys who then had to find a creative way of explaining it to the local police. At this time, my kids were just about to start secondary school and infant school, respectively, and my wife and I had talked long and hard about getting away from London and moving to a part of the country for better schools and a quieter pace of life. I'd qualified for promotion to sergeant, so we decided to put the house on the market and move out of London. I applied to the West Midlands Police to transfer as a sergeant and was successful. The house sold quickly and before we knew it, we were on our way to a life in the Midlands. I had my special branch leaving due in a pub in central London and it was a predictably drunken affair. I'd spent such a long time with my much-loved SB friends and we'd become a very close-knit family of brothers and sisters. We had done and achieved such a lot over the previous eight or nine years, and had even helped to shape history. 
I got very drunk and suddenly it was all too much and I started crying. However, two days later, I was driving out of London behind a removal lorry containing all our worldly possessions. <laughs>